0: A few years ago, the non-profit group Doctors Without Borders, they put together this interactive traveling experience called Forced From Home, which let people experience what a refugee goes through. And it begins abruptly. You're told that that your country is, war's broken out in your country and and even in your city, and you must leave immediately. You have 30 seconds, and you can only choose five things in your house to take with you. Uh, Passport food, medicine, shoes, five things, and and five things only. You get going. You arrive to this makeshift raft, and for $1,000, a smuggler will take you across the Mediterranean. You're desperate. You're one of the few who can pay, and you pay it, yeah. You get on board. The smugglers hold up these life rafts, and, and, and they say, just looking out for you. You never know. Well, they're being sold for $200. Everyone knows that's atrocious, but... You're vulnerable, you're fearful, you buy it. You learn later in this exhibit that your life jacket's fake. It's filled with this cheap sponge-like material that actually soaks up water so that if you did go into the water, you would actually drown faster than if you hadn't had the life jacket you purchased. Now, this interactive experience was born of real stories that broke few years ago, where in fact a number of fake sponge-filled life jackets were being sold at exorbitant prices by smugglers to desperate refugees. No matter how we think the the ongoing refugee crisis is is best addressed, we, we feel, right, intuitively there's just something deeply wrong about people being told to spend a lot of money for a product that's fake and may well kill them faster than if they hadn't had it. Or nearer to our immediate context, I think we've seen in recent months all of these pop-up coronavirus testing sites, uh, the vast majority which are, which are good and helpful, but then some of them, they're, they're not legitimate. And they end up taking down uh, your social security number, your credit card number, promising, of course, test results shortly. Not true, but they have, of course, stolen vital information. Or again, who, who among us has not received, especially over the course of this last year, Email scams, phone call scams, the phone ones in particular often targeted towards more elderly populations who maybe aren't as adept at technology every time, who may be living alone, who may have some memory issues, who may be in a place of vulnerability and and, and then a person starts surrendering valuable financial information over the phone to someone who's who's supposedly promising to, to help out or maybe even provide a refund for a certain product. In each of these cases, the common thread is we see how people can leverage fear and vulnerability for profit. And in each of these cases, they're the kind of story that makes us rage within at just, just the awfulness, right? This is, this is stealing. And this isn't just petty theft, right? This is deception with lives and livelihoods on the line. This is just this is wrong. The Hebrew... For the word steal, do not steal, has connotations of stealth built into the word. Do not steal is, is a command, yes, guarding against common thievery of, of, and, and stealing of any kind, but it nods especially to those who would steal while appearing to look good, while, while hiding the whole thing. More, in its original context, it was a command that, un- that was understood to speak especially and directly against Kidnapping. Stealing children or enslaved people or people and then enslaving them, which is to say a significant aim of this command was not simply petty theft, but but was the kind of stealing that threatened lives, the kind of stealing that altered lives, the kind of stealing that when you see it unfold, it, it makes you angry. This is the kind of stealing Zacchaeus was up to. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, we read. Within his time, that means he was one of the many arms of the Roman Empire, collecting taxes on behalf of this unjust and and, and ruthless empire. It was common knowledge that these tax collectors often overcharged and skimmed off the top, took some money for themselves. They preyed on the poor and their fear and their vulnerability because they had the backing of the empire. This, of course, made an already impoverished populace that much more constrained And so absolutely, for the common person, the the tax collector was reviled for who they represented and and, and for the stealing that they did. That Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and rich, Luke underscores, that made this guy all the more reviled. Scholars have suggested that Zacchaeus' short stature is emblematic of how he was viewed in the community, as people thought quite low of him well one day this wealthy reviled thief gets curious about jesus we're not told why he's curious maybe he heard about the teachings or the healings zacchaeus is short he can't see over the crowds and so we read he climbs the sycamore tree so he can get a line of sight and then and then jesus sees him right and says zacchaeus hurry come down for i must come to your house today and that, to me, that, that is just like Jesus, isn't it? I mean, you start to show a little interest in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you start to open yourself to try out prayer. Maybe you read an article or two or a little bit of the Bible or, or a book you heard about. Maybe you click on this YouTube link for the first time or the first time in a long time. Maybe, maybe you click on this YouTube link every week. But you kind of like the anonymity, right? This is like taking uh, the back pew seats reality to a whole new level because now you're just sort of the back of your living room with the PJs on. We can sort of peek in quietly, not even sure we're going to stay the whole time, just sort of watch some, see what's going on, a L- little bit of, of what this Jesus guy's all about. And then Jesus himself, he sees us sitting right there and invites himself Right in, just as we are, not as once we're ready, not once we've got the place pulled together. I must come to your house today. Well, the crowds, they grumble. Because in this case, Jesus has just taken, chosen to take up company with the wealthy thief rather than any number of the poor victims right there. The smugglers rather than the, uh, the refugees. The coronavirus profiteers rather than the weary hospital staff and those on the, in the ICU. The, the, the one who got rich off the scheme, off the skimming, off the stealing. Not, not the one suffering the loss. And of course, it's not that Jesus doesn't love all of those other groups. He does. It's just that right now, in this moment, of all the people Jesus could really focus in on and be with, he has gone to be with the guest of one who is a sinner, the people cry. The crowds grumble, and we get it, right? Can, can you imagine if in our day, Jesus took up precious time over table with some of, of, of the richest or most wrongheaded or unjust people, and I imagine we have a list. This is kind of like answering the opposite of that question, who are the five people you, you'd most want to dine with if you could have five guests? This is like the opposite of that list. But Jesus has yet to move according to our rules and expectations. By definition, grace is undeserved. And grace is always made most abundant precisely when it shows up where it absolutely should not show up. Jesus walks through Zacchaeus' door. And knowing how hospitality worked in that culture, this means a meal. Jesus is coming to spend time as a guest of a rich, unjust thief. But never be fooled. If Jesus comes in as a guest, he does not remain a guest for long. This moment in the story reminds me of that wonderful insight that uh, C.S. Lewis has about how God works. Maybe you've heard it before. Imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that Jesus is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being built into a decent little cottage, but Jesus is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And how would you know? I mean, how would you know if such remodeling and renovation were underway? I mean, what would be the sign that, that Jesus had, in fact, invited himself in among the church or in among the church in a fresh way and, and then soon became the, the chief project manager for this whole space as well as the, as the new space? What would be the definite sign that, 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 that the house was under renovation by Jesus? Well, Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' house, and at some point in, in this whole exchange in reality, Jesus makes that declaration. Look, half my possessions, O Lord, I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back four times as much. It should be noted that Jewish law did prescribe, if you stole or defrauded from someone, you were expected not only to pay that back, but, but with, pay that back with significant interest. However, what Zacchaeus is declaring is, is far, far more generous than the law. He's not just, no longer am I going to steal. I'm not just, I'm going to pay it back with, with interest, according to the law. He is proactively giving far above and beyond the, the legal or social expectations and simply showing forth this, this abundant generosity. Or put, put another way, he's, he's no longer breaking the law. He's now not just keeping the letter of the law. Now he is living into the spirit of the law. The heart of the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, is not not simply you do the letter of the law, but a true living into the the spirit of the law, a giving freely and fully and generously, as as Jamie pointed out in in the children's sermon already. It is an expansive offering in the opposite direction of stealing. Elsewhere, Jesus puts it this way, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. In other words, look to where you spend your money, your gifts. That will tell you what's going on with the heart. Zacchaeus' transformation is seen most clearly not not when he declares, I now believe in you, Jesus. I now understand your teachings all the more deeply and fully. But, but because of your generous grace, who, who, who would come to a house of one like me, here is where my treasures go. One of the most telling signs that a person or a church does not just know about Jesus, is not just learning things about Jesus, they're not just sort of sitting on the tree in the periphery pews wondering about Jesus. The telling sign that Jesus himself has, has rudely invited himself and begun renovating. It's generosity. Generosity. More and more the treasure starts going to the things of God and the things of God's kingdom and really the only things that matter. And so more and more those who know Jesus having invited himself in and renovating, they discover To Charlie's question, it's not just better to give than to receive, but, 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 but giving, it really is the whole thing, and offering, it really is the center of the whole thing. As Jesus invited himself in recently, or invited himself in a fresh way, in this past year in particular, I wonder if you can name, have have there been some specific renovation or some walls torn down or maybe entirely new additions that are being built? What would you name? I mean, maybe. Maybe we, we generally thought ourselves generous, giving, and yet what... What is Jesus doing, breaking down the storage barn in our backyard and and opening us? We can tell the Spirit prompting us to offer ourselves more and more, and maybe more than really we've ever been comfortable opening ourselves. We fear what the knocking down of that barn might be, but then we also wonder, is He trying to free us all the more? Or maybe... We thought ourselves fairly patient. I mean, on the whole, pretty patient with people, things. And yet, with all that has tested us this past year, it seems like like, like Jesus is breaking down the, the, the walls in that room we call patience and making it far more generous and expansive and open air than we ever dreamed needing or wanting it to be. Or maybe we thought ourselves generally kind, hospitable, welcoming, good people, and yet with, with all the people on that side of the aisle, on that side of the issue, on that side of the family that we have had to deal with in acute and ongoing ways, especially this past year, it, it, it seems like Jesus is actively breaking down our fence that has so conveniently... Helped us from having to see or acknowledge or even notice those folks. We really didn't think the courtyards of kindness needed space enough and table enough for all of them. Perhaps we thought ourselves, generally just. And yet confronted more clearly during the pandemic with with the gap between rich and poor, the disparities that can so often exist along racial or socioeconomic lines, It, it, it feels at times like Jesus is pulling the very facade off our house, and it's quite intrusive, it's very uncomfortable, it's invasive. And yet we do see all the more clearly that we might lament all the more fully that we might engage... All the more rigorously, perhaps we thought ourselves generally humble. And yet amid the pandemic, the civic unrest, the divisions, the snow and ice of epic proportions, these all come our way in that tiny emergency room that we've had in the house where we always go when we really need God and just God. Well, it sure seems like Jesus is taking a sledgehammer to all four of those walls that never again will our fully reliant place on God be a walled-off reality, but will always and totally be the whole thing, the full thing, all the time. Where has the master carpenter been at work this past year? And if we can name a place or two where Jesus himself has, has invited himself in and then quickly become uh, the, the, the the chief project manager, then I think we need to pause and consider if we're not all that different from Zacchaeus, that we might have more in common with him that we might want to or like to admit or would first see in ourselves. We too need grace to meet us and expand us indeed it's often i think the things we can't stand about the wrongs of others that actually also speaks to something that we can't stand about ourselves and thanks be to god jesus has no problem being a guest even a host in such space Speaking of renovation, I chose this room for a reason because I think the visual helps us make clear that uh, a portion of our property is definitely a mess. Some of our property committees and staff, they have been in and out recently as they've coordinated the initial cleanup effort and, and some fixes already underway. The restoration and updating and all that is, is, uh, doesn't have a timeline yet, but the insurance adjuster came on Friday, and so we're going to learn more about all that in, in the coming days. Um, but, but, but there's a lot that's, that's under construction, that's under renovation, that's, up, that's, that's, that's needing a fix. And all of this, of course, comes after an incredibly trying and even exhausting here, And I think for, for some of us, it almost starts to feel like, my goodness, God, what do you have against us? Are we cursed? Is this a sign? What's going on? We know that's not mm, the best theology, but ugh, what's going on? But then I think when, when Jesus, when he draws near to a house, he starts knocking about in ways that can hurt. Abdominably. I'm not at all saying Jesus went in and made this whole mess and, and, and uproar. Not remotely, I don't, I don't believe that. But at the same time, I do wonder if in the strangest of ways, the current state of our church property isn't something of a sign, a visual, even a testimony. And what it declares is this, in precisely the year we have spent the most amount of time separated from one another. In precisely the year where the wilderness wandering has been longer and more acute than most of us have ever remembered. Precisely in that year, Jesus has been incredibly active. Jesus has moved in all the more fully, all the more deeply, all the more widely, and he has been doing significant renovation And what if all of this imperfection, all of this disrepair is not reason to despair, but actually, even as it is hard to see, even as it means there is still a long road ahead, but actually it can serve as a reminder to us of just how near love has come and love is come. And what if in time... When others see FBC coming out of this, this extended season of wilderness, the narrative is not, oh my goodness, look how, how broken they are, how, how diminished, how, but rather, my gosh, look how full their generosity, how expansive their patience, how open their courts of kindness and hospitality across the board. How courageous and continual their pursuit of justice. How, how profound the reliance upon God throughout this remarkable house. What if the narrative was to this house, surely salvation afresh and salvation fully has come? Amen.